I was introduced a couple of weeks ago to a, a new TV series. I'd never even heard of it. It came out of talking about Survivor. There's a few members of our family that enjoy Survivor. I don't mind Survivor. But I was talking about how fabricated it is. And they said, no, no, there's, a, there's another show you should watch called Alone. Now, kids, it's not really a kid show. There's some content in it that's a bit scary and some language and bits and pieces. You get to see a snippet of it anyway. But <laughs> it's okay. This part's selected carefully. But the idea of this show is there's 10 people that go out into the wilderness with just the pack on the back and what they've stored in their pack. And it's basically last person standing. So they go out without any supplies other than what's on, in their pack. Um, and they're on their own, so they're at 10 different locations, and they've got to try and survive. And it's in a part of Canada where there's bears and cougars and wolves as well. So some people last a day because they have an encounter with a bear on the first night and go, I'm out. And they press the emergency beacon and they come and pick them up because they're filming themselves. There's no camera crew. What you don't realise in Survivor is there's 50 people around the place all filming what's going on and there's a whole production crew there, whereas in this case, they're actually on their own filming themselves until they decide to tap out, they decide to leave. There's a brilliant illustration in this. There's one guy who couldn't start fire. It's very wet. Apparently, it rains 70% of the days. 70% of the days of the year, it's, it's raining and it's, everything's wet and he couldn't start a fire. And if you can't start a fire... You can't boil water. So he came in with these preconceived ideas of having fresh water that actually fell apart. And this is the little clip. So I've been drinking from basically a brackish pond here. I had been waiting till the tide is at its lowest for this creek to drop out so I could get the freshest water possible. And then I filter it through spangle moss. But, uh, it doesn't really appear, I mean, just based on the way I feel, I think I possibly have some type of, uh, oh, it stinks, oh my gosh. So, I've been drinking water out of a creek with a dead fish rotting on the side of the bank. This is a nausea I've never felt before. <sighs> Exhausted, out of energy. Oh my gosh. This is one big sandwich. And I'm the only one here to take a bite. <laughs> oh, there it almost came. There you go. So this, these are survival experts. So you might have noticed this guy's actually, um, he knows what he's doing. Well, he thought he knew what he was doing. There's a technique that if you find a particular type of moss and filter the water through the moss, it gets out a lot of the debris in it. But he recognised he was feeling unwell. And so what did he do? He went upstream from where he was getting his water from. And he realised what he thought was okay water to be drinking was actually water that had dead fish and stuff in it upstream. And he tapped out. He starts hallucinating. He starts having a really tough time because he thought he was drinking water okay and he thought he knew the techniques to make purify the water. But it wasn't until he goes upstream, smells the smell, recognises that the problem wasn't where he was. The problem was upstream. 
He didn't go upstream. And this morning, you get a double whammy. There's two parts to the message. The first part is looking at this idea of going upstream and going up to the source because we often spend a lot of space in this place of what do we do? What do we do? What should we do? Or what did I do that maybe I don't want to do again? For me, I had experience of that. I've got a a nice blister here from not wearing gloves, going out and doing some gardening and spending most of my time indoors so my hands aren't tough like Simon's from farming. What should I have done? I should have worn gloves. We spend a lot of time in this space of what we do. But what we do, if we go upstream, comes from a place of who we are. We actually do things out of who we are. And so we end up in this place of doing things, but our doing things actually only are a product of who we see ourselves as. And if we go upstream even further, that gets influenced potentially by a whole range of things. Our friends and our family dictate in some ways who we are. We, we often will say, oh, I do that because that's the family tradition. That's who I am. That's who my family culture is. This is who we are. And it was funny, I was actually, Sue and I worked out this morning that we actually both know the same person. Her uncle is a friend of Tanya's family. We're just like, seriously, this is amazing. So we worked, worked this out. And Sue said someone would walk, walk up to her and says, I, I can tell you're a Langton because you look like a Langton. And so we go, who we are is based on family and friends. But it's not always that. Sometimes our image or our appearance, their, their hairstyle, the clothes they wear, the car they drive, dictate who they are, determines who they are. Status. Some people are proud of their job, some people aren't. Some people are proud of the school they go to, some people aren't. They're just two examples of status, but status applies in a whole different way and it influences who we think we are. Suffering, trauma, events in our lives that were not pleasant impact who we are. Tanya and I have a foster daughter who we've spent 18 months instilling value and significance and and trying to communicate who you are. But fundamentally, being removed from your family and your home and being in another environment, that trauma, that shift, we can't take away in terms of defining who she is. And we can work hard at at changing that. But that event alone, that circumstance of, of being removed, the trauma of that, is actually defining partly who she is. There's a lot of things that feed into who we are, that are upstream, Things that that flow on and trickle down. In the Bible, Jesus talks about a story. It's a fantastic passage. If you ever get a chance to flick through um, the Sermon on the Mount is what it's called in in Matthew, uh, chapters 5, 6 and 7 of Matthew. Phenomenal. You think I talk for too long when I talk for 40 minutes? Mate, Jesus went the whole day by the sound of things. He just... And it's gold. It's really good stuff. And they actually... They say at the end of it, it's like people were just blown away with with the, the way he communicated. It was fantastic. But it's also in Luke and there's, there's a bunch of things. And at the end of it, at the end of this day of teaching, you know, workshop we'd call it these days, this full day workshop with Jesus, he tells this story. And I'm going to read from Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 46. So Luke 6, verse 46 on. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me, and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. 
But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. It's a really familiar story. Probably most of you go, yeah, I know that one. But it actually reflects this concept really well. Because we start with Jesus saying, you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I tell you. So we're working down at this end of the spectrum, what we do. What we do reflects, like there's a bit of a contradiction going on between calling Jesus Lord, Lord, our our relationship with him, who we are before God, and what we do. And this story is a beautiful picture because what we do is like living in the house. It's a beautiful picture of, of getting to live in this house, but you can't live in this house unless you build the house. That's what it is. It is a house. But the house, that the flow-on effect doesn't happen. The house doesn't stand. You can't live in it if it's not built on a good foundation. And the good foundation needs to go deep, deep to the point that it's, it's on the rock. And the rock is even one step up. So you've got a rock on which a foundation's built, on which a house is built, in which you can live. So we've actually got this trickle-on effect, this flow-on effect. And what God does affects who we are. And who we are then flows on to what we do. But what God does actually comes out of who God is. So who God is determines what God does. What God does determines who we are. And who we are determine what we do. We're heading upstream. We're going upstream. And we often spend time on the what we do part. But I want to go upstream and have a look at what's further upstream that's motivating what we do. This is throughout scripture. We have an example of, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son in John 3.16. So it's who God is, is loving. What does God do? He sends Jesus. What does that make us? We're redeemed. That's our identity. And it gives us an opportunity to love others. And you go, but hang on, love others isn't in that verse. But you see in 1 John 4.19, it says, we love because he first loved us. So you can see this flow on effect of loving others is a command, but it's not a command without the fact that it flows from somewhere else and it flows from who God is. I'll give you another example. 1 Peter 2, 4-5. It says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God sees Jesus as precious and chosen. That then means we are living stones and a holy priesthood because of what God did through Jesus, how God sees Jesus. And what that means is we get to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, if we don't go upstream and we only end up in this last little bit down the bottom here, Offering spiritual sacrifices sounds super religious and legalistic and potentially ritualistic and very much like what the Israelites went through, through the law. We've got to go upstream to recognize that it's actually out of what God does that we end up in this place. And it's a beautiful picture. What I want to ask is, what do you think it says about who God is? Love. God's loving. What else does it say about things that the world rejects? God's value system is different. God actually values things that the world rejects and he's actually put us in a position way beyond our capacity 
This God actually raises up things that were potentially yucky or rubbish and puts them into a position of responsibility and authority. Wow, this God must be amazing. One more, Isaiah 41.10. Is this making sense? Because we're going somewhere. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What does this say about the flow of the stream? Don't be afraid, dismayed. Has anyone ever told a kid in a thunderstorm not to be afraid? Has anyone? A few people? Did they believe you? They did. They don't believe me when I say it. A thunderstorm is bigger than me. So me saying to a child, don't be afraid, doesn't really cut it. It's like, well, can you stop the lightning? Can you stop the thunder? Can you make it go away? I can't do any of those things. Telling someone to not be afraid is not really a very good help unless there's something further upstream. Because God says in this, he is with us. He is strengthening, helping and upholding us. There's a reason not to be afraid. And he implies in this, it's because we are God's. Part of our identity is, is who God says we are. And it says at the last little part, it's because he is righteous. Everything he does is right. It's good. So because God is righteous, he is with us and strengthens and helps us. And from that, we know that we are God's. And as a result of that, we don't need to be afraid. We don't have to hold on to this, this thing down here blindly, wishful thinking, hopeful anticipation. But we can go upstream and know that the water is good. That what we're drinking down here is actually because upstream, it gets even better than what's downstream. The reason I want to go through all this is because often, as I said before, we spend time down here saying you should do this, you shouldn't do that, you should behave this way, you shouldn't behave that way, you should say this, you shouldn't say that. And Jesus does that a lot too. So I'm not trying to say that's bad. But what Jesus also does is he acknowledges the source of where it comes from. Because without knowing where it comes from, all that stuff just feels like hard work. And all that stuff feels draining and painful and frustrating and never productive unless you know where the source comes from and this morning I just want to spend a few minutes just a few minutes unpacking characteristics of God because this for me is super super exciting and whenever anything in my life good or bad happens I love going upstream and checking to find the source it's not always good it's not always pretty because sometimes the source is not God Sometimes the source of my behavior and my actions and who I see I am is not coming from the source of God. Does anyone remember the series we did on people of purpose? There were three broad themes that we covered through that series consistently. Does anyone want to have a guess at what those three, three themes were for people that were here? Identity. Brilliant. That was, that's who we are. Yeah. Encounter. What do you think encounter is? experiencing what God's doing and the last one commission which is the outcome they're actually all the flow of this stuff and they come out of the rock the foundation who God is so let's just unpack this briefly God has unwavering love we've sung about it this morning however I have a problem with what we sung about this morning and we've discussed this as a worship team because God's love if you talk about his character is not reckless. It's very considered and intentional. 
It's not a mindless, stupid decision that he decided one day. And unfortunately, the word reckless can sometimes be, be referred to as a passionate, illogical, I think is the intention, that it doesn't make sense why, how much he loves. But it also can also mean that it's a, a mindless, silly thing. So we've got to be careful when we go upstream that God's love is unwavering. And it does seem stupid to us. Why does he love broken people like me? That sometimes feels crazy. Why would he do that? Why would he waste his effort? I keep mucking it up and he keeps coming back and loving me. The next one I've chosen is knowable and welcoming. It's another amazing, amazing characteristic of God. That he is knowable. We can know him. And he's welcoming. A God with so much power and authority is actually knowable and welcoming. This is what's upstream. He's comforting. A God that provides comfort to people in challenging circumstances, in places that are stressful or or traumatic events. God is a comforter. His character is one of comforting. He's compassionate. He actually cares about broken things. Now, this blows our mind because we see people and the more power they get, the less they care about people. And I'm not saying that for every case, but as a generalisation, the further you go up the chain, the less you get to care about people. And for those that don't know, I'm a bit of a U2 fan. Bono was asked a question, because he's got some very powerful political friends. He's got some, some friends that are in very, very high places, and they said, why don't you go into politics? You'd be great in that space. You're a great public speaker. You've got lots of fans. And he says, I've seen enough to know that the further up you go, the more time you have to spend keeping your job and the less time you get to spend actually doing the reason that you started. So the higher you go into into political or powerful positions, the more time you have to spend keeping your position and the less time you get to spend on the reason that you started. This is not our God. A God who deserves all praise and glory. Like he could turn around today and say, you all got to worship me and we'll worship him. He could present himself in his power and his glory and we could do nothing but bow down and worship. He could force that upon us right now. And yet he's so compassionate and doesn't do that even though he deserves it. He's different. He's different to people we know. He's honest. Now this sounds a bit funny, God being honest, but he's the essence of honesty. What he says is always right, is always true, is always valuable, is always significant. And he's powerful. Now, all these things are not new. I'm sure you've heard all of these things before. The challenge we've got is that they're often nice ideas. They're often things that we've heard before. We've been told about. We've read in scripture. And I've put scripture references there. If you want a reminder or a refresher, it's often good just to go back to scripture. I love the way scripture speaks life into circumstances. But today, I don't want these things to be nice ideas. By the way, I could have chosen 40 more. These aren't all of God's characteristics. This is, this is just a little snapshot. I just throw a dart at a dartboard and pick a few. There's way more to God and his depth. But the reason I want us to just stop and ponder for a second is because this is the rock on which we build. This isn't, but God's character, God's nature, who God is, is what out of everything flows. We are not sitting here today without this God. We do not breathe. And I love the picture that Captain Eric uses around the word, word Yahweh, God's name. He says, Yahweh is like breathing. Yahweh. Yahweh is like the breath in our lungs. 
this God, this rock is actually the foundation of life. The only hope that we have. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but the person next to you is not completely honest, is not completely compassionate, is not completely powerful. They're going to let you down. As amazing as they are, and as much as God lifts them higher and gives them titles and, and, and sees them greater than the way we see them, they're still not God. And yet the one thing that we can get super excited about, the one thing when we look upstream and know that we can rely on, is God the rock, the foundation, the reason for us to build. Now, I don't want to get down the other end and get too tasky. I'm not going to tell you to do anything today. I believe God wants us just to stop and pause, not from a knowledge point of view, but from an experience point of view. Because this God is not a God that died on the cross and rose again and went back to heaven and disappeared for 2,000 years. He's a God that is present, living and active today and wants to be part of our lives. I'm sure you've got stories of experiences of each one of these. I know if you're questioning any one of those, please ask me, ask someone else because I can give you immediate tangible examples of God's character in my life. Each one of these are here because I've seen them at work. I've actually seen them happen. And I don't want us just to sit in the space of who am I, what should I do, without going upstream and going, what is the source of all this? To stop and to ponder, to stop and reflect and go, who is this God on which we're basing our lives, on which we're reorienting ourselves, on which we're discovering and understanding and living life? Because this God is absolutely mind-blowing. This God is an inspiration. If you lack joy or hope or peace, if things down that bottom corner are in a tough place, look upstream because upstream there is living water. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't create it. You can't run it through your spangle moss and hopefully it, it freshens the water out. It's a God who is generous and abundant and giving and giving and giving. And he loves us enough to correct us and and remind us of who he is when we get a distorted picture. But it's not about us. We're down the river. We're down the river, receivers of the water. We're not creators of it. And so we have an amazing opportunity just to stop and to pause and to just acknowledge the rock. Not as a nice idea, but a very tangible rock. Has anyone built a house or had a house built by a builder for them? The first thing they do is they want to test the soil. And they want to test the soil to know how stable it is, to know how deep the foundations have to be, to know what's underneath the soil, whether they can create proper foundations. They don't care about the design of the house until they know what the foundations are going to be like. There's no point dreaming up your dream home and how it's going to be great to live in unless you've got good foundations. It's the most critical part of the picture. And yet we get caught up at the other end of the picture. Let's just pause. Let's just spend a couple of seconds just going, God, I want to remember you. I want to reflect on you. Lord, I've heard that you're good and we sing songs about you being good. But I just want to pause and ponder your character. Lord, you so deserve our worship. Whether you do anything for us or not, you still deserve our worship. And yet you've gone way beyond that. And given us so many reasons to love, to surrender, to worship, to adore, 
to rejoice in who you are. And Lord, you do that so constantly. Lord, we want to thank you. We want to praise you. We want to acknowledge you as the one and only good thing, truly good thing in existence. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We have life because of you. We have freedom because of you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.